the Triathlon Show 361. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Andrew Sellers. Andrew is uh, the founder of the Balance Point Racing Team, a triathlon and cycling club based in British Columbia, Canada, and he is the co-founder of sports technology companies VO2 Master and Breathe Way Better. VO2 Master uh, manufactures a portable metabolic analyzer uh, that can measure oxygen uptake and respiratory data, and Breathe Way Better is a respiratory training device. In this interview, we discuss training, physiology, testing, and we also do a deep dive into the respiratory system and uh, respiratory training and how that works. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, tri suits, swim skins, goggles, performance sunglasses, and prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water, then look to Roka's range of wetsuits. From the entry level to the top of the line wetsuits, all of them come with arms of technology and exceptional quality and comfort in the water. Roka's tri suits work perfectly together with the wetsuit, wetsuits as they too come with arms of technology to really maximize your shoulder mobility for the swim. And on the bike and run, they are optimized for aerodynamics and comfort. Roka's range of sunglasses and prescription glasses is also packed with innovation with patented technologies such as the Geeko anti-slip technology. They are ultralight and have excellent optical properties. Visit roka.com for slash TTS for 20% off your order. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working on your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can even use it to do activation work before a pool or open water swim, and you can use it to do swim bike brick workouts more easily. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back. And you can get a special TTS bundle including the swim bench and a bunch of Senate training plans and on-demand workouts on zenatewintrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's my interview with Andrew Sellers. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Andrew. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I've heard you on a few other podcasts, so I'm really excited for this discussion. Can you start by just uh, giving the audience an introduction of uh, who you are? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Andrew Sellers. I'm uh, a physician and athlete and coach uh, in Western Canada. I have a background in a number of different things that it's taken my uh, career and my kind of uh, trajectory into different directions. But my day job is I work as a, a small town anesthetist in a little town called Salmon Arm, just north of uh, Ironman Central for Canada at, in Penticton. And I have a couple other roles with um, two startup companies, uh, one called VO2 Master, which some of you may have heard of as a, the first portable wireless uh, VO2 monitoring device on the market. And the other uh, is a, a new respiratory training device called Breathe Way Better. Uh, and I'm working in collaboration with two athletes that I uh, used to work with for both of those projects uh, who've taken my passion and turned it into products to help athletes training and, uh, and testing. So my other background is in physiology. Uh, and uh, I did a lot of years of physiologic testing 
before and after medical school before I uh, landed my career in anesthesia. Yeah. On on that side of things, on the testing side and also the coaching side, are, are you the founder of the Balance Point Racing Team? Uh, and can you talk a little bit more about what yeah what that was or is it still active? I think? Sure. So that was a that was a passion product product that came out of our uh, initial work. Um, once we once I finished med school, I had uh, reconnected with an old mentor of mine. Uh, uh, whose name is Jörg Feldman, who I ran into years ago in the early 90s when I was coaching swimming uh, up in another small town in uh, British Columbia. And for those that don't know Jörg Feldman, he is probably the smartest physiologist and coach that nobody's ever heard of. Uh, he successfully coached some of the best cycling athletes out of Canada, including Ryder Heshtal and Jeff Kabush. Uh, and he has had his hands on a number of world-class athletes over the years. And he developed uh, a number of different theories uh, in his little neck of the woods. He's a Swiss-trained uh, physiologist and physiotherapist. He came out of uh, the sports schools out of Switzerland uh, at a time when all the Olympic athletes were training under the same uh, umbrella with many athletes from around the world. Uh, and he imparted knowledge to me that I still use today. Um, and a, a lot of that revolved around, at the time, uh, in the late 90s, he was one of the first ones to start playing around with uh, lactate testing and a desktop lactate analyzer. Uh, and when lactate became portable, uh, he developed a lactate testing system that uh, is still, I think, the best uh, the best use of lactate is still comes from the work that Jörg Feldman did back in the 90s. Uh, and a lot of theories around uh, that have been blown up about lactate comes from his work. Uh, and he, so he developed a test called the, called the lactate balance point test. Uh, and we developed a team based on the physiologic principles that he imparted to me. And in reference to him, what you called the team balance point racing. Uh, we started that in the uh, in 2002 to support a small group of athletes in our valley that were uh, had aspirations of racing triathlon at a high level, and there wasn't at the time any very good coaching uh, in our small area. So we uh, started a team back then, and it grew and grew until the point that uh, I couldn't really manage it anymore, and. Uh, we had a couple high-performance athletes that had come through the system and wanted to take it over. And so it, that team is still running uh, under Luke Way. And there's a, there's a number of athletes that he's working with that are having excellent results. Uh, and he took on a group as part of that team, took on a, a group of juniors that have uh, exceedingly exceeded expectations. And one of them is racing on the ITU circuit. So he's uh, running under the balance point banner. That's Brock Hole. Uh, it's a name that you'll hear in the future, I expect, because he's continuing to improve along the steady trajectory that we expect. Uh, and so Luke Way is running that team uh, and running training camps under the Balance Point banner. And I still, Luke's a good friend of mine. He's the one who started uh, Breathe Way Better and uh, does respiratory training. And uh, I get the joy of seeing the team survive and continue to thrive and uh, be part of the success of the business that uh, He's been he's been able to create with the ideas that we shared years ago. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a fascinating part of your of your story with with that team and and the testing and working with Jurg, and we'll mm-hmm. get into the testing uh, and uh, some other bits and pieces. But first, with that background and and your background in coaching, I just want to get into some general training questions to start with. So, okay. if you can just, I guess, give an overview or description of your endurance training philosophy. Okay. Uh, I did. I, I was really glad that you gave me a, a little bit of a heads up that you were going to ask that question because I did put a little bit of thought into uh, my philosophy. And this really is a philosophy of, of balance point racing. And that is that uh, to best support athletes, my philosophy is that the only way to improve something is to first measure it, then to decide what you want to improve, then create a training plan that is going to specifically target what you hope to improve and then remeasure it to see if the improvements you expected are actually what happened and then allow the athlete to race to to actually put your theories and your practice into a true testing environment which is the only test that really matters is how is how they perform on race day yeah so with, yeah so with that in mind that the testing has to be specific to what you want to look for. And so that I, I guess leads into the second part of the philosophy is that, is that what are you testing for? And you're not testing for performance. You're testing to look for weaknesses and you're testing to look for physiologic changes that you actually can adapt over time. And our system is based uh, on recognizing that the body works as a complex uh, Uh, dance between seven different systems and the systems that we look at through our testing are all seven of those systems so that includes the cardiac or the cardiovascular system which heart and blood vessels the respiratory system the lungs and the muscles that move uh, air in and out of your lungs the musculoskeletal system so all the muscles and bones and how they fit together the neurologic system, the coordination of those muscles and bones, the metabolic system, so how fuel uh, is brought into the system and used to create energy. Uh, I'm getting close to the psychological system, uh, how the brain uh, manipulates the emotions that go around with that. Um, Did I get them all? I think I got seven. Six, six, I believe. Uh, One, two, three, four, five, six. Sorry, six. Yes. The last one was the over the the seventh one that I talk about is sort of the inert uh, overall way those packages all fit together. That's the, the seventh right. system is is the interconnection, the play between the six. Yeah, can you maybe give an example of uh, either a hypothetical athlete or somebody that you work with? You don't have to name names, but just an example of that testing, uh, deciding what to work on, and then doing that work, retesting, and so on, just to see it in practice. Sure. So um, a, a good example, uh, cross-country uh, skier. So they come, they come to us for testing because they're having some performance limitation. Their, coaches, their coach has found that they look like they ski really well. They have good technique. They're in a short sprint. They're able to ski as fast as anybody else on, on the hill. But they get into a race and they're they're struggling to keep up in a in a 10k race. This is a junior athlete, and so at the time um, we were limited to testing uh, somewhere. And this comes down to what is actually te- what are you actually testing? 
So from a physiologic perspective, and this is um, in our ideal world, we would test them on skis. But this is off this athlete's training off season, so we don't have access to snow. We don't have access to a a, a really expensive uh, a skate mill, so we can't put them on a on an indoor workout that that simulates the work that they're doing. So we're now looking trying to find the physiologic limitation that that athlete might have that would slip that would prevent them from performing on an endurance event on the snow the next winter. So. Um, we tested that athlete both running and cycling. They were doing cycling as, a, as an off-season sport, but we looked at both their running and their cycling performance to see if we could identify physiologic limitations. And what became clear for that athlete is they had two limitations. One, they had a heart rate that went exceedingly high very early in the test. So even at very low intensities, their heart rate was already stimulated to overbeat what we expected. So it identified that they had a very small heart that had to beat very quickly in order to provide the cardiac output that they needed for performance. So they had structurally a small heart. The second problem that they had is one of the things that was driving that was an exceedingly high respiratory frequency. So they also weren't making proper use of their diaphragm and, and using their lungs. So with two very simple uh, interventions that were focused on cardiac development and respiratory diaphragm usage. They shifted their training through the rest of the summer and had a much better performance the following winter with ability to sustain long intervals on skis with lower heart rates and slower breathing patterns. Uh, and I don't think that coach ever would have figured that out. They would have just kept pushing them harder and harder and harder uh, to try and overcome what was a perceived um, inability to tolerate uh, high intensities for long periods of time for a 10k race and unfortunately i think that would have burnt that athlete out and the and somebody would have told that athlete that they just didn't have what it would take to be performing at a high level and what were the interventions that you uh, suggest them to do yeah so that uh so this gets into the, how do you adapt what do you use with the testing data and that it's uh it's a good question so for this athlete she had to slow down her intensity she had to drop her intensity below the level that created the alarm phase for her heart rate going too high. So her, the bulk of her training for the rest of the summer was her runs became walks. They were, it, she was able to fairly quickly, uh, after walking for a couple of weeks, be able to start doing slow jogs. And by the end of the summer, she was actually jogging uh, and doing some running on flatter ground. But anytime she hit hills, she had to walk. It was the only way to keep her heart rate down. So it was taking a, a fairly elite athlete and making them go very, very slow uh, and, and with a with a strict um, regulations on what she was doing with her heart rate. So she adapted her training based on her heart rate uh, and had to maintain a maximum heart rate that was not into the alarm phase. So for her, her, her heart rate wasn't allowed to go over heart rate 130 initially. Uh, and that allowed for the development that we were looking for. Uh, but that meant she had to walk. So her training was went, went from running in the trails to walking. And uh, she's super frustrated for the first little while. But when she started seeing the results coming, that, that helped. The respiratory training, um, we were doing some specific respiratory training. Uh, mostly at the beginning was just education teaching her how to use her diaphragm, how to engage um, her intercostal muscles to allow a proper use of her diaphragm and full inhalations. And then we put her on a respiratory training plan. At the time, we were using a device uh, called Spiro Tiger, 
which comes out of Switzerland uh, and was the only device that you could use for hyper uh, for isocapnic uh, training, which is maintaining steady state CO2 levels. Uh, and that's really where how Breatheway developed as we were looking for a product that um, we could affordably give to athletes to do the kind of respiratory training we were doing with Spirotiger. And Spirotiger is a great product, which we used for years, uh, but it's expensive. And it wasn't really accessible to a lot of the athletes that we were um, working with, especially the younger athletes. So um, that's how Breathe Way Better was born. It was to create a device that we could simulate the breathing patterns that we want to in sport and make it affordable for anybody who wants to have access to that. Hmm. And uh, you mentioned there with the, the athlete that, uh, well, the hypothesis was that she uh, had structurally had a, had a small heart. Uh, so, and that's something that I've heard you discuss before on other podcasts, the difference between structural and functional adaptations and mm -hmm. things like the time course uh, differences that exist there. So can you discuss that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, sure. So if, um, if you buy into the notion of the, the performances based on a, a complex array of, of all of those different systems we talked about, then then it's not that hard to see that if you break down those systems into a simpler look, that the changes that we expect the heart to go through are can be now subsequently divided into two different areas. There's the immediate reflection of what happens to the heart with training, and there's the structural development that happens over time. So when we talk about function and structure, We talk about the changes that happen physiologically as a result of training and the areas that you can improve those, those, all of those systems uh, with specific interventions. So when we talk about structures, we talk about what is the building blocks of those different systems. So for the heart, for example, you have the structure of the heart is a four-chambered muscle. It is of a certain size, and with every heartbeat, it beats a certain amount of blood called the stroke volume. And when you combine the stroke volume and how fast it beats, the heart rate, you get the cardiac output. And that's how much blood is delivered with each pump or per minute uh, of the cardiac cycle. So the structure is what you're set with. So you and I at different ages with different training backgrounds and all the things that go into it, we have different hearts. Your heart, your heart with your training background may be bigger than mine. And that will give you a greater ability to push more blood through your system and give you a better performance than if my heart is limited in size. That's the structure that you have. The function of the heart then is how fast it can beat and how quickly it can relax. And this is... If you have a big heart, but you cannot, it cannot be trained, it currently is not beating very fast, then you're, you may have this, a structural advantage over me, but not have the function to be able to use that structure efficiently. I may be blessed with the ability to move that heart very quickly and relax very quickly to allow for filling of the, of the heart, and that would be my functional advantage. If we could combine those two benefits of a large, well-functioning heart, then you have an excellent path to higher performance. So in every system we look at, we look at what the structure is. We look at what the, we want the structure to look like. So everybody knows that 
the best structure for a heart would be a large, strong, thick-walled, but not too thick, heart. That's the structure we're aiming for. It, if we want to take my smaller heart to match your structural volume, what is a big, healthy heart, then it is going to take me months to years to develop, recognizing that I can do that. We know that we can improve heart size through specific training interventions. That's why is, uh, historically the largest hearts come out of endurance athletes who have been doing years and years of low intensity training. These are the Norwegian cross-country skiers who are famous for having these massive hearts. And that is, that's not a fluke. They come out of a system that develops skiers from a very young age, and they do lots of volume at low intensities. And that leads to large hearts. And that, that's true for any endurance sport, that if you train at a low enough intensity, you can develop a large heart. But it takes a long time to happen. The other side it's of, like, of that—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hypertrophy training for the heart. Uh, it's exact—it's exactly yeah. what it is, and this is this is one of the things that's missed in a lot of the studies about uh, from a sports perspective about changing dynamics. Is they forget that the structural changes that you're some of the some of the changes that we are hoping to have with athletes are are should be focused on structural changes, but. There are very few studies that are done over a time period that would actually reflect structural changes. Any study that's less than 12 weeks has nothing to do with examining how training affects structures. They are all functional training changes and are therefore limited to the expectations of what's possible to change. And that all the studies that say that you can't change VO2 max and all this are all based on short-term studies that don't address the structural changes that can happen, which are are not only dramatic, but are also underreported in science because of the li- time limitations of the studies. So most studies are six-week studies. There are some that are 12 weeks, and that's because a, a school semester is about 16 weeks long, and they need to get the collect the data. They need to test, collect the data, retest, and then publish the study. So they never look at what happens structurally to those. They can't measure what happens structurally because they don't have enough time to look at the differences because they're they're not measurable for six weeks. Your heart will not be much bigger in six weeks. If you take on a specific training plan to improve your heart size, your heart is not going to be that much different in six weeks. It might be functionally different, meaning that it might beat differently and it might be able to reach higher heart rates. And you can do interventions that can change how your heart beats quite quickly. And these, this is where the fast adaptation that you see in uh, in performance, can, you can make dramatic improvements in performance in six weeks. But those are functional changes in how the body uses the structures that it has. And that is what we mean by functional uh, measurements is using the structures that you have to, to do a performance is a, is a functional um, is the functional component, which can be trained quite easily. And you can see dramatic changes in six weeks, but you haven't changed the structures in six weeks. Hmm. Uh, I'll give you one example. I was involved in a study uh, doing um, cross, they were looking at cross-sectional area for bicep tendon strength. And they put us on a six-week training program to see if we could improve our, our muscular strength and to see if it would develop hypertrophy, increasing muscle size. And they did a very strict program of, of bicep curls 
They did MRI study at the beginning of the end to look at cross-sectional area, and they did a very strict um, testing protocol for for strengthening. And they put us through, there were, I think there were four groups in our in the study that I was involved with, and I was just involved in one. I, I was one of the test subjects. So my my program was uh, extremely high intensity but very low uh, repetition. So I was doing two to four reps at maximum or super maximum intensity with a little bit of assistance from a from a person with a, a strict protocol for a bicep curl I, I wasn't a particularly strong athlete so you know i could i can't remember what my first numbers were but let's just give an example i could curl 50 pound with both hands on a straight bar i could curl a 50 pound um they, weight and that was just my maximum thing my maximum curl and on a single rep at the end of six weeks, I more than doubled my strength of my bicep tendons. I was able to curl 120% of what I had initially been able to curl on a single rep max with zero change to my cross-sectional area of my biceps. So purely, fun I did not change the size of the muscle. The only thing I changed was my ability to recruit different muscle fibers. And so I made a neurologic change and a coordination change to my ability to curl biceps, no structural change. Hmm. So the, for me, and that was a great example, there were other people that were in a hypertrophy program. They showed no muscles. They showed minimal or no measurable muscle uh, volume change because it was a six-week program. Now, if you put that same, those same athletes through a 12-week or three-month or six-month, you will start to see muscle hypertrophy. But you need to do that over six months. So also you need to put them on a, on a program that is going to continue to build muscle. If, you're, if my goal as a triathlete was to just develop strength, the program I was in was fantastic. But it was only going to last about six weeks because I would max out what I was potentially going to do in six weeks, which is why so many athletes have a plateau after six weeks as the program they're doing is, fun is causing functional changes. And at the end of six weeks, my functional changes are done, and I'm not going to continue to see another doubling of my ability to contract my biceps. With the biceps that I have, there's no further changes that are going to happen, and the only way to make future changes is to actually readdress it and make it structural changes, which is going to take months to years to develop. Mm, yeah, oh, that's a great, great explanation. And uh, yeah, so can you discuss then how – how you you triathlon training uh, similarly and differently than other sports, including, for example, you mentioned cross country skiing as an example. What are, yeah. are are there any peculiarities around triathlon in the way that you approach it as a coach? Just because we have three disciplines. Yeah, and triathlon was so fun, and that I um, I I I'm old, so I have a lot I have a lot of different experiences. But I my I mentioned it briefly, but my. My background in athletics, I, I grew up as a swimmer. I wasn't a good swimmer. I was, a, I was very small for my age. I was, never, I was never really competitive as a swimmer, even, on, even at a local level. Uh, but I kept swimming uh, through university. I played water polo at, at, at a university level. Uh, I traveled a little bit with that team. But again, I was small, so I was, I was under advantage in, in sports that really do benefit long levers and, and big bodies. And so... Uh, but I loved being in the water. So I, I swam a lot. Uh, and then I started coaching and, and I started coaching because I was really frustrated as a swimmer, not being able to compete against big swimmers. So my, so I spent my paid my way through university coaching swimming. 
to age group swimmers. So I, 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 there's a lot of small towns in BC that have swim clubs and I would travel around and coach uh, these small teams of 100 to 150 kids, uh, all the way from six years old up to 16. Uh, and so when the sport of triathlon began in the, in the early 80s, I, was, it was a, a, I loved running and I was a good swimmer. So it was a natural fit for me. I just had to, I had to learn how to ride a bike. And um, I, hadn't, I hadn't grown up riding a bike all over the place like they do in Europe. So it took me a while to become a cyclist. Uh, but I loved the sport of triathlon because of the, uh, the multidisciplinary nature of it and the fact that I would never get bored because there was always something fun to do. So our approach to coaching triathletes comes out of a little bit uh, with that background. It's understanding that swimming is a technical sport. You can be a fantastic swimmer and not be particularly strong uh, or, um, uh, or particularly fit. And you can see this in any – if you go to any swim pool anywhere in the world and you put an age group triathlete who didn't grow up as a swimmer in a pool with a 10-year-old kid – who has been swimming since they're six years old and that 10 year old will win every race against every adult ever. And it drives the triathletes crazy who look like fantastic physical specimens. And this is, again, goes back to structure and function. So you can take the most beautiful looking triathlete and put them in the water against a 10 year old chubby kid who doesn't particularly look like they have any muscle mass at all. And if they have grown up as a swimmer, the 10-year-old child will beat the beautifully physiqued triathlete if the triathlete is a non-swimmer. That's the difference between structure and function. The triathlete has the structures to be a great swimmer. They have good muscle balance. They have a big heart from their long years of cycling and running. But they don't have the function to be able to coordinate good swimming technique. And so there is... So this is getting the long way around to the story of how we train to athletes. We train to athletes the same way we train any athletes. We look for the limitation in the sport that they're training and we focus on that limitation. So if I'm coaching a triathlete who is a non-swimmer or new to swimming, then 100% of the focus in swimming is going to be on technique. There is no point in making them, trying to get them to move their arms faster or to uh, or to build a better heart system or better breathing system if they can't even move in the water efficiently. They can do their physiologic training, their cardiac training, and their respiratory training on the bike and on the run where it's fairly easy to ride a bike. Most people can ride a bike if they have the basic skills of balance and some small levels of coordination. Uh, and so... Uh, the swimming focus becomes mainly technique driven. There are some athletes at a, at a high level who have swum their whole lives who now need to focus on other pieces of that um, puzzle. But for the most part, swimming becomes a technical expertise, uh, technical exercise. Uh, and then the biking and running in a similar fashion, if you have, depending on their background and what they have trained to that point, the limitation may be the same. They may be with testing, you can determine whether their limitation in cycling is a cardiac versus respiratory versus muscular or a metabolic problem that they can't sustain high loads for long periods of time because of a, a, a fuel challenge that they can't sustain either 
glycolytic system or fat burning to be able to, depending on the distance that they're going. And so the focus of training for cycling becomes identifying the limitation and then training to adapt to that. And that may be the same limitation they have in running. But I'll use a, a very famous and easy example um, in uh, that most people will um, remember when Lance Armstrong semi-retired from cycling and wanted to become a runner and decided he was going to start running marathons and putting all his his history of drug cheating aside he at the time had one of the highest vo2 maxes ever recorded in the mid 80s and the expert sat around table and started predicting what he was capable of doing running and there were people predicting that he could run a a, a low two-hour marathon with that VO2 max and his background in triathlon. He was actually a very good triathlete when he was when he was younger. They said he should be able to run easily down into the two tens, two twenties. But I'd seen him compete, and he hadn't run for twenty years, and he is coming out of a cycling, a pure cycling background with no other training other than cycling for that. 20 years of his cycling career and he was signed up to run the Boston, the New York marathon. And I saw a short clip of him running and he did not have the coordination to run anything close to 220. And that became the very perfect example of what happens if you take a cyclist and expect their performance on a cycle on a bike to indicate how they can run. So his functional ability running did not meet his physiologic or his metabolic ability on a bike. So he ended up running a three hour, just barely breaking three hours. His quote at the end was, it was the hardest, it was the hardest physical thing he had ever done in his life. And his legs were absolutely shattered. So he didn't have the ability to, to um, absorb the load of running a marathon. So he did not have the, the, the structure, the musculoskeletal structures to support it with the eccentric loading of running. He didn't have the coordination, the neurologic components to be able to run a decent stride length with a fast enough cadence to be able to sustain a faster pace. He had the cardiac system. He had the lung system. He didn't need to do any training on his cardiovascular system or his respiratory system. What he needed was musculoskeletal and neurologic training. And so the training for Lance Armstrong running a marathon would be completely different than you or I running our marathon, if, we're, if you and I are both going to race Ironman, our training needs to look differently because of what our backgrounds are. So unless you and I both grew up as young swimmers and then came to cycling fairly late and were pretty good runners, then our training is going to look completely different because of the structures that you've developed over your years of training versus what I've developed in mine. So our approach to triathlon training is individualized based on the physiologic testing that we do and the background of the athlete to address their own personal limitations on the lance armstrong example so if you had yeah. if you had one year from when he ran that 250 marathon and and you could train him in running to run a 220 marathon the next year or something what what yeah. what changes would you have, or what would you have had him train specifically okay uh, it's a great. So I love the way you asked that. I have a year, right? And so, yeah, yeah. and this, this is this is really important, uh, and I really want your listeners to hear this, because when when I first started doing Ironman, uh, this is now back in two thousand and one, 
I, my plan was to only do one. So I had that same kind of idea. I'm, I have a year. And this is what a lot of athletes do. They sign up for an Ironman a year in advance and they give themselves a year. But what becomes very clear in any athlete who, who starts to do Ironman is that after a year, they're only just getting started in what is potential for the changes that they can make. And I would, I would challenge every coach out there to relook at whether they should be training people for a year or whether they should be training people for life. And if, so the first conversation I've had with Lance is please don't do a marathon. Please don't do just one marathon a year from now. Please think about becoming a marathon runner and doing this for 10 years because the potential for you 10 years from now is infinitely higher than what your potential is a year from now. So if I only had a year, I, the there are some structural changes that I can make in that time to his, uh, to his body. So I can make some changes in a year that will adapt his muscles and his some, to some degree, his muscle skeletal structure to allow him to run more fluidly and more efficiently. So I would focus first on flexibility and strength for running specific running muscles and adapt some of the great strengths that he developed on a bike that would now benefit him more for running. But so there's a shift, there is some shift there from a quad dominant to a little more hip strength and and some hamstring to be able to absorb the load that he's going to need to do for the run training he's going to do. So I would focus on those things probably first. And again, I would test him to see what his limitations were. I would check his flexibility. Part of that would be how does he run right now? And I would look mainly at his coordination and his running efficiency. And those are the main areas that I would focus on initially. And I would see how he adapted to that in the first six weeks. And then I would, so I wouldn't set a year long training plan. I would test him. I would look at what he is doing currently for his, uh, his ability to produce good stride length and good cadence. And I would see if he's, I would find that limitation for him and start training that and then retest him in six weeks to see if what I thought was working is actually working. Uh, and if it's not working to readdress the training plan. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he may, uh, just as an example, if he's got a slow stride length, he's going to have to work. He, he's got a slow stride rate. He's going to have to work on his stride rate. So all of his training has to be done with a higher cadence. If he already has a high, if he already runs naturally with a high cadence, but a short stride length, then the training I would do would focus on lengthening out of stride length, which might require increased flexibility or increased strength or both, depending on what's limiting his stride length. So remember running speed, I, I'm a very simple person. So everything gets, um, is almost always divided into two. So there's two components to how fast you run. It's how fast your feet move and how long your stride length is. Those are the only two things that you can change to make you a faster runner. You either go faster feet or longer strides. There is, for every athlete, there is going to be an optimum stride length and an optimum cadence to give you the fastest speed that physiologically, cardiovascularly, and respiratory-wise you can actually handle. So uh, so for Lance, it would be what's, what's limiting him. Is his stride length, his foot speed? It's unlikely to be his, at the time, it would not have been his cardiac system. We know he had the biggest VO2 max. So we know he can pull oxygen in and use the oxygen exceedingly well to create energy. 
So that's not his limit. So I'm just going to predict that those are not his limitations. His limitations yeah. is going to be his muscles or his coordination. Yeah, no, I would I would agree with that. I, I think there is also uh, for each person and for each distance, there's that ideal uh, stride rate Ab- and stride length. Very absolutely. Different. Yes. And, yeah. and even, even even for the Ironman marathon versus a standalone marathon, I think that yeah. there's yeah. when you, when your muscles are really tired, like a bigger focus on stride rate can can be the athletes that are capable of holding a high stride rate, even when their muscles are tired after the bike, that they are usually very, very really good, okay runners. It's a, it's a very good point. And, and, and it is that discussion is often missed in the commentators who, uh, and I'll challenge people because uh, next week is Kona and you'll watch people get off the bike and you'll start see, and people will look like fantastic runners, but they're running long strides with slow cadence. And I have yet to see anybody who starts at their five-minute mile pace with a long stride and a slow cadence be able to hold that at Ironman after a 180K bike. The ones that are going to do well are the ones that can adapt their running to be able to run a faster cadence and unload their muscles because they can't run a marathon after after a four-hour Ironman bike ride in that heat. They can't run that kind of long stride. It's just It's not possible. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that it's one of the reasons that the marathon times are relatively slow on the world stage. When you look at at Ironman marathon paces, even for the pros, although um, Blumenfeld is getting closer, uh, and some of the great runners in the sport are getting closer, they're still a long way off a true marathon great time. Their biking times not that far off. Their swimming times aren't that far off, but their running times are dramatically slower. I mean, I think Christian blew everybody away when he ran a 2:32 uh, in uh, in Cancun, which is insanely fast for Ironman. But it's not insanely fast for a marathon when you have uh, Kipchoge running 2:01 in Berlin. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a half hour difference. I mean, Kipchoge's 12k ahead of him at the finish line. Yeah, yeah, yeah different true. sports. Yeah, and and it's also probably got something to do with there's just the reality. It comes comes against you when you're doing something for seven and a half hours and you are they are biking close to their ability and something has to give at some point and it's probably it's usually the run yeah it's, it's fascinating because if you gave them 20 minutes on the bike could you get the 20 minutes back and you can't and you can't and and no. that's yeah but it's fat but it's fascinating that you can't and every, and yeah. everybody has because we've been because there are so many thousands of people doing it everyone is has has come to the understanding that they can't run like a runner off of the bike. It is, it is just, it's a, it is just a, a factor of the distance and the time that requires to be able to be competitive on the bike and still be competitive at the end of the run. And the, the, the most successful runners uh, um, are more on the women's side with uh, Marinda Carfrey um, uh, and Haug who can, who, who are able to hold, I mean, but truly, if they could bike faster, they would bike faster. They they just they don't have the ability on the bike, but they they're lucky, they're fortunate enough to be good enough runners that they can run down the field from sometimes quite a ways back. And Marinda's you know, famous in Kona for coming out of what looks like middle of the pack in the pro field and and running through the field when she was running. I think she ran two fifty two, yeah, two fifty, right? Which is a which in Kona is a very fast run. Uh, she's she's got that ability i'm sad that she's not going to be there this year i was hoping that she was uh um 
I was hoping she was going to come. She's not quite ready to come back to Kona, but she's uh, she's making her comeback, and she's just such a great athlete to watch. Uh, as a perfect example of someone who is who's adapted their their race tactics to meet their physiology. Mm, yeah. So. I want to get a bit more into testing, even though we have already sure. kind of touched upon it quite a lot. But just specifically, when you have an athlete these days coming uh, coming into you to, to get tested, let's say it's a triathlete, what are the tests that you would do with what equipment? Uh, what is it like? Yeah, and, and the testing protocols in not, not necessarily, okay, this many watts or each minute in a ramp test, but, you know, is the ramp test, lactate yep. test? Uh, muscle oxygenation all those kinds of things yeah uh thanks i uh, i will i'll preface this by saying i do very little testing on other athletes now i test myself a lot uh but i don't test a lot of athletes that luke, luke really has taken over the, the uh, luke way has taken over um all of the testing for balance point racing um but i'll tell you that the system that that we have used and that he uh he has i would say as close to me as we can it has perfected a a method of testing that that works um, uh, for the athletes that that we work with, which are mostly endurance. At so again, uh, back to specificity. It's mo- most of the athletes we work with are triathletes or cyclists, uh, and we do have some runners that we work with. Um, so, and most of them are uh, all of them are endurance athletes. We don't work with we we don't have any athletes in our stables that are sprint athletes or or. Uh, or power athletes, although although Luke is uh, advising some uh, um, CrossFitters, uh, which is a fascinating group of, of athletes in themselves. So, uh, so I would test the athlete in in ideally in the sport that they're doing. So for our triathletes, uh, we do test them swimming, biking, and running. Uh, and I do feel you need to test biking and running separately. They're two different sports with two different sets of limitations. So to make predictions for running off of a cyclist doesn't make any sense for reasons that we talked mm-hmm. about before. So that's the first part. Uh, the second part um, is, again, somewhat dependent on the athlete and their history. So if you have a, if I'm coming to look at a, a swimmer, uh, my testing for a swimmer with a background in swimming is different than my testing of an athlete who's a triathlete who's come to swimming late. So I can almost guarantee that I don't don't need to test them physiologically in the water. I need to test them, uh, their coordination, and I need to test their um, technique. Uh, so swimming testing aside, um, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll finish swimming by saying if I if I am actually testing a swimmer. Uh, and they're trying to find out why they can't swim with the lead pack in a in a pro race. Then really, I I'll, I'll have to look at both their physiologic side as well as their technique side. So is it a technique limitation that they can't keep up with those swimmers, or are there physiologic reasons that they can't keep up? Um, so in the water, you can actually do VO2 testing. Uh, I haven't done a lot of it, but we can, and we've identified respiratory limitations in swimmers that were holding them back. So they can actually swim the right speed. They just can't swim the right speed for long enough to be able to stay with a pack. And it particularly, this is particularly obvious and important in ITU racing, right? So if you fall behind in the swim, you'll never catch up. Because if you don't get out of the, of the water with the lead pack and you're in a chase group on the bike, you are at a disadvantage that will never make it into that top tier because you're having to work too hard on the bike. 
so uh, testing for swimmers is important, um, but differently depending on their level of athleticism and what their background is. So, so if you have that really high level swimmer and uh, and you have confirmed that well, their technique is not the issue, you'd, you're doing some physiological testing, and and you're saying that you're not often doing VO two max testing. What what would the physiological testing look like? Yeah, so so uh, you can actually do a graded exercise test just like you would on a what like you can do on a treadmill or on a bike. You start them very slow and you give them a the easiest way uh, for swim coaches out there is to actually do a a set distance, so 200 meters, and increase intensity. So you do 200 meters. You can stop. You can actually put a v- if you use VOT Master, you have a portable unit. You can actually look at how they breathe in that 30 seconds of rest between the 200 meter intervals, mm. and you can you can set them up. If they're again, if they're a good swimmer, they can pace themselves themselves, or you can set a timer for them, uh, and you can help pace help them pace it out. But most good swimmers have a very good feel for for what the different intensities are. So you start them very slow. Look at their metabolic uh, um, work when they're in their 30 seconds of rest and do five times 200 with increasing intensity for each 200 and look at how they breathe in their rest period between each set. So that the typical a graded exercise test for swimming it, for me would be on a good swimmer be five times 200 with 30 seconds in between using VO2. During that rest, you can also look at their heart rate. So we look at the respiratory data, how fast they're breathing, how deep they're breathing. You can look at their oxygen consumption in that rest. It'll drop off very quickly. Um, But you can actually uh, extrapolate what they're using VO2 during the swim from that curve. Mm. Uh, And then you can add their heart rate. You can add MOXIE uh, MOXIE monitors uh, to the swim test. Uh, There's been some success with some coaches using MOXIE actually during the test and um, because it sends a signal far enough that it's, as long as you keep your um, collecting the, the data collecting device close enough to the pool, you can actually look at it live, which is fascinating. You can actually see when they run into physiologic limitations. Uh, so, Moxie, there may or may not be lactate values in that. I, um, I'm not a, uh, again another topic, but I'm not a big fan of using lactate as a just as a ramp test. It doesn't. It's not how lactate works. Yeah, I know what's going to go up. It doesn't really matter to me um, that it's going to go up. I can predict where it's going to go up based on on all those other factors, moxie and respiratory. So I don't really need lactate for those swimmers, and it's a bit of a pain to do it in in, in water. It just tends to, it tends to be messy and and not that much of a benefit to the athletes. So that's how we test a swimmer. Uh, mm. a, a good swimmer. Uh, it's hard to do that with weak swimmers because they can't pace themselves very well. And the distance that they have to go to reach some sort of physiologic stability is too long. They'll get too tired too fast. So um, I remember you talking in one of your podcasts that you quite often do long steps for your physiologic testing of eight and sometimes 10 minutes. And we, we can get into why that's such a smart idea um, and what the problem is with shorter step tests than that. Uh, but for swimmers, again, if you have a weak swimmer, they're going to get too tired too fast to be able to do five steps of a graded step test yeah yeah true um yeah yeah, that's it's 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 really interesting to hear that and it brings back memories of uh, just before the the first covid lockdowns i was visiting the norwegian camp here uh 
an hour and a half, an hour north of Lisbon when they were here. And I chatted with Adil Tveiten, the head coach, and they had just recently, or in the last year or so, they had one change they had done to their training from our previous discussion was that they started using VO2 Master at that point and done some testing and realized that, well, they, they're just not using a very large percentage of their on land VO2 max when they're when they're swimming so so that had led them to do some training interventions to see if they could uh, they could increase that and, um, yeah well, they I really think- are they really are leading the way in uh, they've been very helpful the, their Norwegian team Christian Blumenfeld and Olaf Alexander Boo his uh, his technical coach and uh, and Gustav Aiden have been using have been actually partnering with us with VO2 master uh, in helping uh, expand ways that we could use it and uh, and have, have been giving some very good feedback on what's helped us. So some of the new changes that are coming with VO2 Master are a result of their input, which has been fascinating. So we're actually going to Kona next week to um, to connect with them again and to cheer them on for uh, for the race and, um, yeah, and expand those conversations. But, yeah, it's a fascinating – the way the Norwegians are using our device and um, – uh, and really, le- are, I really do think are leading the world in in, in interpreting and, and what they're using it for and how, and how they're using it. But they're, for exactly those same reasons that we're talking about is how how do you assess an athlete to find out what what's actually limiting them? Yeah, yeah, Not, yeah. Um, and uh, moving on then to cycling and and running, what would that look like? Yeah. So yeah, so the typical test we do um, for cycling and uh, is called. Again, this is one of Jörg Feldman's um, brilliant insights. So we moved away from doing a standard step. So we, for years, we did uh, a balance point test, which was basically a standard step test. Uh, so increase a graded exercise test. So intervals of increasing intensity uh, from a very low intensity up to a relatively high because of the athletes that we're working with. We don't need to do max testing on these athletes. Um, the athletes that we are working with are mostly endurance athletes. So we're less interested in what happens at the very, very high end. We're more interested in what happens at the racing intensity. And for Ironman, the racing intensity is significantly below maximum. Um, so we start very low intensity and we do a graded exercise test up to a moderately high intensity. And with a balance point test, what we used to do is then bring them back down below a threshold or below their balance point where they were starting to produce lactate. And we would do a second test back up with very long intervals, showing exactly where the lactate balance point went from being an ability to clear lactate out of the system and use it as a fuel to starting to reaccumulate lactate. And that became that is the fundamental understanding of what a balance point test is, is a first ramp to show where lactate begins to accumulate and a second ramp very slowly to, to fine tune where that lactate balance point is which is once you've done a few thousand of them you get very good at 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 realizing every athlete is different and so the test and this is the hard part for most people who are new to it is it's different for every athlete so you can't you can't study it in the typical way that science studies it because you it's not the same test for two different athletes so you and i would have two completely different looking tests we might do the same ramp test to begin with but as soon as we've done the first ramp test, this, the recovery is different for you than it is for me, and the, and the test has to adapt to the athlete. Uh, so that's how we used to do it. We have since, with the addition, uh, the ability to be able to do muscle oxygenation, 
uh, we started using Moxie as um, as one of the we had one of the very first prototypes that came out of Roger Schmitz and his work uh, with Moxie, and so we very quickly realized that what muscle oxidation gives you is a uh, real time look at the changes that are happening physiologically and. Uh, it correlated very well with what we were seeing with lactate numbers. Uh, so we, in those, in the few years after we started using Moxie, we almost completely dropped the need for using lactate uh, because all lactate is is a surrogate marker for what actually is happening in the muscles. And you have to wait a minute. Mm -hmm. You have to do the blood sample. Then you have to wait a minute for that result to come back before you know what's actually happening. Uh, and what Moxie was doing was giving us exactly what was happening at at the time. So we didn't have to wait a minute. We could see it live. And so, uh, our, our testing, uh, patterns changed with the addition of Moxie. So we rarely use lactate anymore. Uh, we can see what's happening live in the muscles. And so, uh, so our tools for our, um, uh, for our testing are a heart rate monitor, a Moxie monitor or two or three. Um, uh, we use VO2 master cause I have access to it, uh, easily. And then some um, uh, some way of measuring performance. So uh, on a bike, it would be a wattage. Uh, we can talk about running next, but obviously running is easiest with speed on a treadmill because it's um, sustainable and um, stable. Uh, and then Jurg's next development was actually recognizing that if we're actually trying to look at the physiologic systems, um, looking at how it's performing at a set given it, um, intensity is really important. And that's why your eight to 10 minute intervals are really important because what happens in the first three minutes gives you some idea, but what happens in the next five minutes gives you more of an idea of whether that's a stable situation or whether it's a changing situation. And if it's changing, then you better understand why it's changing at different intensities. But then you add one more piece of that and that's you, what happens if you stop stimulating the system and give it a chance to recover. So uh, Jurg developed the idea of what we call a 5-1-5 test. So it's a five-minute interval. It's a one-minute rest. And then a repeat of the same intensity a second time for five minutes. And the fascinating thing about that is in the first five-minute interval, at the lower intensities, you'll reach a physiologic stability. You can see what's happening with that stimulus physiologically. Then you give them a one-minute full rest. And during the one-minute rest, all of those systems begin a recovery process. And how they recover gives a fascinating insight into which systems are being challenged more during the on interval. How, how is that? For, yeah. So for, so for example, if let's say you're starting your test at hundred Watts, very easy wattage for you. And so it's an easy walking pace, uh, the equivalent of a walking pace for you, right. Yeah. Is hundred Watts. Yeah. So very easily, if you start at hundred Watts, you'll get the bike rolling and then things will stabilize quite quickly. Your heart rate will come up to a level that provides enough oxygen to the muscles to, to produce, uh, enough wattage in your legs to be able to produce hundred Watts. Your heart rate will become stable. Your breathing will likely become stable. Um, some It may be such a low intensity for you that you don't actually need to stabilize your breathing because a random pattern of breathing will still provide enough uh, airflow for oxygen and carbon dioxide out that you'll be able to stabilize that. So you may have a fairly uh, unstable breathing pattern just because it's such an easy interval for you.
At the end of the five minutes, things will be relatively unchanged than they were from the three-minute mark. And then we stop you cycling. The immediate things that will happen, your heart rate will start to slow down. So if your heart rate was beating 90 beats a minute to produce 100 watts, when we take it to zero watts, your heart rate will slowly go from that 90 towards your resting heart rate. How quickly it responds to that is a reflection of your your cardiac reserve and and what your uh, um, what its ability to sustain that water it gives some indication of what is it able to sustain because of how quickly it can recover same with your respiratory rate you'll go from your respiratory pattern that is patterned at removing the co2 that's produced at 100 watts to now doing it at rest where there's very little stimulus to your breathing pattern your breathing pattern will slow down so will your uh, oxygen consumption, so your we can, which is a great surrogate marker for cardiac output. Your VO2 numbers will slowly drop. All of those things in that one minute will will start to drop off, and the trend of that will change at the different intensities. So let's take the test now. Thirty minutes later, you've done a bunch of intervals like that: five, one, five, one, five, one, five, one, five, and now we're up to a very hard intensity for you, and we're actually pushing you quite hard at three hundred watts. Now you're getting close to a very a, quite a high heart rate. Your legs are working really hard. All of your systems are now being taxed. When we do the one-minute interval, you will see which systems are actually able to f- recover in that one minute and which ones don't. So you may find that your heart rate, which was going at 165 beats a minute at 300 watts, now only comes down to 150 after one minute. So you have a slow recovery of your heart rate that starts to indicate whether there's reserves there that are actually limitations if you're able to recover your breathing but not able to recover your heart rate you may have actually a fairly strong respiratory system that is not being taxed at 300 watts whereas your cardiac system might be the limiting factor Hmm. same uh in in the same way you can actually use moxie monitors to, to look at recovery of the muscles uh if the muscles are unable to recover their muscle oxygenation there's some indication about the tension that remains in the muscles and it can give us a, an, a very unique insight into your um, muscular limitations at those higher intensities hmm. so yeah so we do a, we do a 515 test on our athletes uh, both running and cycling um, and then pull all as much data as we can from from those diff- those three main monitors heart rate moxie uh, and vo2 master uh, we've been recently adding core temperature sensors to that um, dynamic to help look at some of the things that help give us a even more indication of what's happening. It gives us some cardiovascular information because of how the blood flows uh, to the skin and how the temperature increases over time and uh, and challenges uh, with that. So the core temperature is fantastic. Uh, it's just, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a small device that goes onto yeah. a heart rate strap and gives very good indications for temperature but also gives blood flow information uh fascinating device um and we used to add lactate to that but we don't anymore because the muscle the moxie gives us the information that we need from uh from the metabolic side Mm, yeah that's uh yeah that's really fascinating and a a great overview and uh, let me see here i think that for testing maybe let's move on to the respiratory side that we can transition into that from from the testing so so yeah how do you assess because i think you get the respiratory data with the vo2 master uh as well yeah 
Yeah, and that is uh, it's interesting because that is one of the. Um, uh, so you're yeah you're right in my it, it, uh, this is this is my passion is breathing is breathing um, and this dates back a long time to uh, some studies that were done but also some um, some uh, some readings and some audio tapes that I heard uh, when I was actually first connecting with Jörg Feldman in the early 90s and it was um, audio tapes on how to become a better runner through breathing and. Uh, it open it, with the recent uh, books that have come out with uh, breath and oxygen advantage. Uh, there's been this re a, a new interest in breathing uh, and the and the benefits of nose breathing and the benefits of slower, deeper breathing and uh, induction of the diaphragm and all that stuff is things that we we were doing 20 and 30 years ago that is has resurfaced. So for years, uh, when we coached athletes. Um, when we first started doing VO2 testing with a with a desktop analyzer, using we used to use a Fitmate, um, we saw that um, every athlete breathed differently. So even though the VO2 numbers would would trend up like we would expect them to in a graded test, how people got those numbers was different for each individual. So some individuals would breathe very fast and very shallow and some would breathe slow and deep and performance limitations were would show up very quickly in people that couldn't control their breathing patterns um so much like we talked about with stride length and cadence the respiratory system has a very similar um very simple approach to it it has there's only one way to increase your ventilation or the amount of air that you breathe there is the tidal volumes, which is how big a breath you take. And there's the respiratory frequency, which is the breathing rate is how fast you breathe. And those two things together combine to form the ventilation. So you only have two ways of changing how you breathe. You either breathe bigger or you breathe faster. As intensity increases in exercise, you have to breathe faster. And that is a response to blowing off the CO2 that is being created at the muscle level. So the response to exercise, people talk a lot about trying to oxygenate your muscles. And the reason you breathe is to, is to provide oxygen to your muscles. That's not why you breathe. You breathe to blow off CO2 and to balance your pH in your system. The CO2, um, managing CO2 levels is a direct result of the body's need to maintain physiologic pH, which is very tightly regulated because the body doesn't like to have a pH outside of the range between 7.35 and 7.45. Anything outside of that is extremely uncomfortable. Enzymes don't work very well outside of that range. Uh, so all of the metabolic systems shut down and your muscles don't work well. Your brain definitely gets um, negatively affected by those changing levels of acidity in the blood. Uh, and with the changes in blood flow that happen with rising or falling levels of CO2, that's how it's, that is how the body regulates pH is through breathing. So the response to exercise is increased breathing, whether you do that through faster breaks or deeper breaths can be seen if you measure it with, with any device that measures respiratory rates and, and volumes. VO2 Master is the one that we use. Um, uh, and really, that was the main reason for creating VO2 Master was to examine how people breathe. The benefit is we can also look at oxygen consumption 
which is a surrogate marker for cardiac output um, because it's a, it's a measure of VO2 is a measure of how much oxygen is being used at the periphery, but to get oxygen to the periphery, you have to send it there, and that's the cardiac output. But the more fascinating thing for me and the more usable information is uh, for most athletes is actually how they breathe um, because it's there are true limits that can be seen in athletes uh, with, with respiratory testing. Um, so, yeah, so... So we quite often use a VO2 master uh, in our practice for looking at how people are breathing almost more than the VO2 data. Mm. Which is interesting because the name of the device is VO2 master, <laughs> not breathe master. <laughs> uh, you're, you're totally right. It's, uh, it was, there were some long conversations in the boardroom about, uh, about what, we're, what we're doing. And realistically, um, there is such a strong understanding of what VO2 is. Um, Uh, publicly that everybody knew what VO2 was or everybody thinks they know what VO2 is. Um, I have some concerns about the general public's understanding and the, and the benefits. And what I have ever since the beginning is explaining, explaining to people that yes, we can measure VO2 max and yes, we can look at VO2, but the power of the device is exponentially increased when you understand that it's a really good device for measuring not only VO2, but also breathing. And it's the only device that you can do exercises in real time in the field. And so, you know, we talked earlier about CrossFit athletes or rock climbers or mountain climbers, and they've never had an ability to test how they breathe when they're doing the sports that they're doing because they're historically they were tied to a lab with tubes and wires and hooked up to a non-moving platform. With a VO2 master, you can actually see how a climber on the, on the side of a wall is actually climbing up the rock. And you can see when they're holding their breath and you can see when they're bracing themselves. Uh, and that's all fascinating data, which is, which is super fun to see happening now, the studies of what happens to different athletes under different conditions. Hmm. So what would uh, some sort of respiratory limitation, what, what are the... Yeah, what are the limitations that that you would see? How how do they manifest? What what is the consequence of having some kind of respiratory limitation? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I um, so remember, uh, I'm super simple. So for me, it's either there are there are two ways to look at it. It's either structural or functional. So the structural limitations will be are mostly around volume. If if the goal is to be able to have the ability to breathe with a With an excellent breathing pattern, you need to have be able to produce a high ventilation. So you need to do that with volume or the respiratory frequency. The structural limitations are going to be volume. So it's going to be the musculoskeletal system, how the how the bone your lim the volume is limited by two things. One, the size of your body. And so uh the lung volumes are are uh correlated very uh clearly with height. So remember the lungs are a, a big um pyramid the bigger the base of the pyramid the longer higher the pyramid the bigger the volume so someone who's six feet tall will have a larger lung volume than someone like me who's uh, limited by our height and i'm only five foot seven 170 centimeters so someone who's 200 centimeters tall is going to have a larger lung volume than me that's one limitation to lung volume the others the other limitation of lung volume is how much the ribs can move And so how they move at the cost of their, your thoracic cavity, the cage that holds the lungs is attached at the back along the spine. 
and how those ribs attach to the spine and their ability to hinge and pivot on the spine is, is the secondary volume limiter. And the third thing that contributes to volume limitations uh, structurally is the diaphragm. So how the diaphragm contracts and how far it can move into the belly can be a structural limitation, but quite often it's a functional limitation. So you can improve that quite, you can improve the function quite quickly, but if you have the structures to be able to support it. So we look at the respiratory system in both of those, again, in both of those ways, the volumes first, then the structures that are limited, and then the functions that are limited. Then we do next, do we do, we go to the respiratory frequency limitations. So to, sim- to try and simplify it, always look at every system individually and then look at the two sides, structure versus function. So we look at structures first because that's going to be the long-term goal is to improve the structures because otherwise the only, the only changes you can make are short-term changes functionally. So uh, every athlete that we work with, we try and tell them that it's a long-term process. We are, we are going to look at their bodies for the next year, three years, five years, 10 years. So we have lots of time to work on structures. So we, we assess that structure first. Uh, so with a brief, with, through breathing, uh, through breatheway, you can, you can, uh, do an assessment with breathing, or you can use VO2 master or metabolic cart to look at how they are using their current structures. And you can get some indication of what their structures are by doing a simple spirometry test. So you can get lung volumes and gives you some idea of the function of how fast they can move that air. Um, then we move to respiratory frequency, which is mostly a coordination issue, but there is uh, there is some indication of structures if there's, uh, sorry, for respiratory frequency, it's mostly functional. Um, there's not a lot of, stru- you need to have the structures to support respiratory frequencies. So you need to have uh, muscles that allow for increased respiratory frequency. So you need a diaphragm that can contract quickly and you need intercostal muscles and abdominal muscles that can coordinate and blow out quickly. And then the ability to breathe in and breathe out is very similar to cycling, that the limitation is quite often not how fast you can contract, but how fast you can relax. And so we can do coordination tests, which you, which show up uh, during any sort of graded exercise test. You can actually see the point, the rate, the respiratory frequency at which they lose coordination. So that becomes part of the assessment. How fast can they breathe and still control the patterns? Mm. Is is that a different assessment than ventilatory thresholds? uh, Or is that what you would refer to there? So, yeah. So ventilatory thresholds are are pattern changes that happen through any graded exercise test. So um, anybody who's been through a, a physiologic test where you've started easy and gone harder and harder and harder, there will be clear areas in most athletes where their ventilation rate and volumes change. And those have been identified in, uh, in the literature as ventilatory thresholds. People quite often talk about two clear ones, a VT1 and a VT2 with the VT1 um, coinciding with what a lot of people call an aerobic threshold. And that's going from kind of a resting pattern of breathing to a slightly higher rate uh, and usually also associated with slightly higher volumes, but an increased ventilation to adapt to the increasing workload. And then that pattern will stay stable for a number of uh, intensities 
as as intensity increases, that pattern will stay relatively stable until another increase in intensity that's noticeable in a in the, in a change in ventilation, and that correlates quite closely with what people have called an anaerobic threshold or a lactate threshold. And for obvious reasons, as you start to increase the breakdown of sugars, which produce a higher level of lactate, you require a higher level of oxygenation. But what really is driving that is the increased level of CO2 being produced to buffer the acid that is being produced from glycolysis. And that leads to an increase in ventilation, which is uh, blowing off the CO2 to again, back to balancing that pH. So it's physiologically understandable why your respiratory rate changes significantly at your lactate threshold. It's because of the acid being produced, not from lactate, because lactate buffers acid. It's, being, it's the hydrogen ions being produced from ATP production from the breakdown of sugar. And as you increase intensity use, as you start to increase the breakdown of sugar, you're going to produce higher, more acid, which requires you to blow off more through, of CO2. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that's that's different than what you were uh, mentioning there, which was when somebody's respiration respiratory frequency goes up at some point, they lose control of it. That is a a different. So thing. it usually it it, ha- it usually happens at that point at that VT two. Okay. So yeah. So when they lose most most people can control the pattern up to VT two. Mm. When they get above VT two, many athletes will lose coordination above that. Some people can can still be a, a pretty good pattern. And that again shows that they're not limited in their in their coordination or their volumes. But if but everybody will increase their ventilation. VT2 is by definition an increase in ventilation outside of the uh, um, more than expected. And that increase in ventilation quite often comes with a, a a poor coordination. And if they have poor coordination above VT2, then you have a clear limitation in function of the ability to coordinate respiratory patterns. If they have good respiratory patterns, it's just a lot higher, then they, they clearly don't have a respiratory limitation. And that is exactly where we'll look at the data and say, this person can breathe 150, 200 liters a minute, and they still have good patterning. What we've seen in most athletes who don't have respiratory training in their, as part of their program is they do lose control. And that becomes a question or a potential for intervention is that they can't pattern good breathing patterns at high ventilation. Hmm. So let's uh, discuss the training interventions that can be done or interventions in general with the respiratory system. So what okay. are they if you break them down and what limitations do they address? Okay. Uh, so um, just like we were talking about with how we test it, the, the limitate the, what we're focused on in training is how to address the limitations. So we have we talked about volume, so tidal volume. So if they have a limitation in tidal volume, then there are specific exercises to improve costovertebral mobility, diaphragm contraction, so full diaphragm excursion. Um, those are the two main ways that we address volumes. Uh, so. We have the ability with BreatheWay to be able to, um, we don't have a, a, an isolated way of measuring the volumes, but we, because it's a rebreathing through uh, a, um, an anesthetic bag, you can actually vi- visually see the volumes that are changing. That's one of the benefits of SpiroTiger. It actually, it actually measures the volumes that you're breathing. And one of the, one of the downsides of 
the less expensive respiratory devices that increase resistance is that doesn't give you the ability to improve volumes. So if the limitation is volume, then really the focus needs to be on educating how to use the diaphragm appropriately and then creating positions to help improve thoracic mobility to increase volumes. So those are the two er the two main areas that we work for volume, diaphragm use and proper breathing patterns and thoracic mobility. If the limitation is respiratory frequency, then the then we're working on coordination. So it's um, specific, uh, much like cadence exercises for running, you can break it down into shorter, smaller bits and have the athlete run with very fast breathing, uh, very fast running patterns. You can do exactly the same thing with a breathway, doing very fast breathing patterns at smaller volumes. And then over time, in maintaining the same cadence of breathing, increase the volumes. So the goal being to to maximize respiratory frequency and then slowly add volume to that. So devil's advocate here, why can't yeah. I just sit here in my chair and breathe really fast? Yeah, because you'll because you'll hyperventilate, you'll blow off your CO2 and you'll get very dizzy. And that, okay. that's what <laughs> that's your body's the, the reason that you are breathing, the reason that you would breathe fast is to eliminate CO2. If you're not producing any CO2 because you're just sitting in a chair, then you will you will be able to do that for a very short period of time. Hmm. Right, and that's one of the challenges with uh, patterns like Wim Hof breathing or Bateko is that you are limited by time because of the physiologic effects of breathing. Hmm. And that's the fascinating balance of CO2 in the body and how profound effect changing CO2 levels have on brain chemistry and body pH that forces you to stop that breathing pattern. Hmm. And that's the benefit of breathway is that allow it, allows you to rebreathe enough CO2 that you don't affect your uh, CO2 levels in your body and you don't affect the CO2 levels and the acidity in your brain. So you don't have the headaches that you get from hypoventilating or the dizziness and unconsciousness you get from hyperventilating. Mm. Yeah. So that's what's re when, when you said at the beginning that it's an isocapnic device, that's what's referred to that it in, maintains the CO2. Exactly. Maintains normal, maintains normal CO2 levels. Yeah. Um, all right. And what el what other questions did I have about uh, training? So, what is there anything in the scientific literature around respiratory training and its effects on performance? Yeah, thousands and thousands. The whole. Um, yeah, we ha uh, we have a library of um, of articles that are on the Breathway site. Um, the original work was actually done out of Switzerland, uh, and the initial work was done. Uh, on patients with known respiratory limitations, either COPD patients uh, or asthmatics. Uh, and with those, the theory was that if we could improve their respiratory system, that we would be able to improve their activities of daily living. And that um, work was what developed, what came out of that work was the device Spirotiger, which was how they were able to test someone's respiratory system without challenging all the other systems. So if you take someone with severe asthma and you put them on a treadmill and start walking, their problem is how they breathe. But so, but if you combine breathing and walking for them, it was too challenging. But if you just allowed them to just breathe and were, had somehow a way of measuring how they breathe under different loads, um, then you could actually look at the effect of breathing on their performance. 
so the initial studies were done on people with known breathing problems, but then the theory came out that, well, if, if people with asthma have a problem, what happens in people who don't have asthma? Do they have a limitation? So uh, the, ver- the first very simple test, um, and I, it was not Spengler. The first one, I'm trying to remember who did the very first respiratory um, test. It was a fascinating test. So what they did was they, they took an isocapnic breathing bag, basically a glorified paper bag, and they had, they had cyclists breathe as hard and fast as they could for five minutes. And then they put them on a, on a, on a ergometer and had them cycle at a 20 minute time trial. And nobody could hit the same numbers after breathing hard for five minutes. And they all just said, I can't, I can't ride my bike. I'm too tired from breathing. Mm. And that became the, the fundamental basis for all the studies that came after that is why are they, why are they struggling on a time trial if all we did was challenge their breathing? Is because breathing is a lim- can be a limiting factor to performance, and that's the if you remember that the most of the work of, of high intensity breathing is that should be done by the diaphragm, but it's just a it's just a skeletal muscle. It's a slow twitch. It's primary. It's a hundred percent slow twitch muscle fibers. The additional muscles when you breathe really hard: intercostal muscles, abdominal muscles, uh, intrascalene uh, scalenes. Uh, and sternocleidomastoid all fatigue just like any other muscle does. And if you need to support fast breathing because of the high intensity of the of the activity you're doing, and those muscles are already fatigued, you can't keep up with the elimination of CO2, and then your physiology falls apart because you're producing more acid and you can't eliminate the CO2 and your pH goes out of whack, and then you sh- your body shuts down because you can't maintain the physiologic homeostasis without the breathing muscles. Mm. So it's very simple to see that if you if you fatigue the muscles, they don't work as well. Yeah. And then the next part is if you train the muscles, can you actually get better? And the answer is, of course you can. They're skeletal muscles. So if you train them to be better, then, then you won't have that as a limitation anymore. Mm. Uh, is, there, is there a difference in how often uh, this re- the respiratory system can be a limitation in between, for example, sprint distance triathlon and an Ironman? Because in a sprint distance race, you will be breathing at your maximum for the entire race, basically. Whereas in yeah. Ironman, that's, yeah, I imagine intuitively it doesn't feel like breathing is the limiting factor there as much as other factors. No, although under certain circumstances it can be. So the so the fat one of the fascinating my theory I think is fascinating is one of the challenges that people have in Kona is it's very hot and very humid. So that heat and humidity forces different breathing patterns under the same load. Mm. So while you may have been able to ride 200 watts for five hours without any limitation to your breathing pattern at sea level in a cool environment you now have to breathe if you have to now breathe differently for five hours on a bike in kona your breathing muscles may have been more taxed in that race than they will have been back at home Mm. and it will it will it i feel that people with with a unrecognized respiratory limitation suffer more in kona than those that don't and you can see this in how they because it changes how they run So now they have to slow down their cadence because they can't sustain a faster respiratory rate. So they have to they end up changing their cadence. There's other there are trickle down effects to not being able to maintain high respiratory frequency 
or high tidal volumes, and it shows up in their running form later. So their cadence slows down or they shorten their stride length to be able to unload the respiratory system because the respiratory system is so tightly associated with posture and core coordination. Um, your comment about the, the difference between Ironman and sprint triathlon is, is spot on. For a sprint triathlon where you are where you're potentially breathing very close to your maximum, if not, you're 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 for sure if you're performing at a high level, you're for sure at your threshold or just above your threshold, and you are going to be driving your respiratory system really hard. And that is where the difference between function and structure comes in, that that will be a functional limitation. You you if you're limited, you'll be limited by your functional ability to breathe air very strong and very fast for a relatively short amount of time for a sprint race, you know, under, under an hour for the, for the high performance, um, athletes out there and, and just over an hour or an hour and a half or for sure under two hours for most athletes. Those are fun. Th that is in that kind of functional time window and you need to have a high functional ability to be able to support that. The Ironman athletes, you start looking more at the structure. You really have to start looking more at the structures because if you have a diaphragm that is weak structurally, you might be able to breathe very easily for five hours or six hours or eight hours or nine hours. But if your structures can't support that same smooth, easy, relaxed breathing pattern for 12 hours, then you start seeing why people are forced into walking midway through a marathon because they actually, they actually do have a respiratory limitation, but it doesn't show up in the first six hours or eight hours. It would never show up in training because you never go through that kind of that that kind of challenge over a 12-hour period so they never see it they never see a limitation until they actually are in a race and 10 hours in and they've been breathing steadily strongly for 10 or 12 hours hmm. yeah and uh what was my next question here yeah my next question was why why isn't the respiratory system talked about more as as we discussed there with the naming <laughs> i mean it, it makes complete sense to me that you named it vo2 master because for I mean, for, for me personally, it would definitely draw more attention with naming it VO2 master than something related to the respiratory system. But but why why is that? I mean, I'm not not saying that that it's that VO2 is not important or anything. But but it's no, just it seems like you're you're one of the few people on this podcast that has uh, ever touched upon the respiratory system. Yeah, there. I, I think it's just I think it's historical. Um, there was there was there were some well-known and um, well-respected individual who, who who made the comments the respiratory system is never a limiting factor for performance. And that has, has sat fairly solidly in the endurance mindset. Um, and that came out of some initial work that showed that people's oxygen saturations never drop when they're exercising. But it was a, a misunderstanding of what actually is limiting performance and the profound physiologic effects of CO2. Uh, I think I don't. I don't know why it, this is. We we've, we've been doing respiratory training for for decades, um, and some very successful athletes have been doing respiratory training, but not advertised it. And I, I really do think that that's a self preservation. They have found a tool that has given them a performance advantage. And why would you share that with anybody else if it's giving you advantage? And one of the earliest adopters of respiratory training was Nino Scherter. Uh, in the mountain bike world, and the whole Swiss mountain bike team uh, was supported by Spyro Tiger and was doing respiratory training as junior athletes. And you can see the performance uh, 
domination that the Swiss mountain biking team has had uh, from that generation of cyclists that came through when they had quite often five or six athletes in the top 10 at World Cup races and at World Championships. Uh, but they didn't advertise that they were doing respiratory training work because if if other cyclists knew that, it was one of the tra- it's one advantage that they had over other athletes. So even though they've been doing respiratory, Nino Schurter has been doing respiratory training for 20 years. Hmm. And, uh, and just... It, it's 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 a lack it's a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding of, of what the benefits are, uh, and it, it's you know I, I've been educating people about breast training for a long time, but it's uh, I, I'm not sure the answer is I'm not sure why people don't know about it. Um, I just I, I clearly haven't been as successful as, as other people at uh, at sharing ideas. I think the new books that have come out, um, Oxygen Advantage and uh, and Breath, the first two, the other the next two that are sort of starting to hit the waves are um, breathing for warriors and the breathing cure uh, I think are increasing people's awareness. And there's a, there was a large population of growing uh, practitioners in breath work. Uh, um, it's another project I'm working on uh, that uh, I, th- I think you'll see it coming more and more. And we're really hoping that Breatheway will help sort of lead the field in, in sharing that information. So I, I appreciate you asking about it because I, I really do think it's uh, an untapped potential for, for many athletes, not all athletes, but many athletes. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you say there about if somebody well recognized uh, reputably in a space says something, then that sticks. It, it goes both ways. Like not, not just with, oh, this is not, important it's never a limitation but also oh this is important like there are plenty of examples and we don't need to go into into any of those but there there are plenty of things that, that just are taken as as truths in in any in, in any field really um but the other thing that your comment about nino Scherder made me think of is that i remember seeing chris froome with some respiratory training device uh in some advertisements and yeah, I don't know. Are you aware of what that device is? I, because I, basically I, my, my, my question memory, is, I, is, is, is it an isocapnic device or not? And then the no, follow-up question would be, not. What is, can you explain what the difference is with those kinds of devices? Yeah. It wasn't an isocapnic device because the only, the only isocapnic devices are Breathe Way Better and, uh, and um, Idiag Spiro Tiger. Those are the only two that provide isocapnic, uh, the advantage of isocapnic training. So uh, I'm pretty sure he was using um, an AeroFit which is a, mm, yeah. a resistive device. Yeah. Uh, so um, there is good literature to show that if you breathe through resistance, you will increase your muscle strength. That, that makes perfect sense. If, if, you cre- if you add resistance to muscles, they will respond by increasing their strength to overcome the resistance. It's no different than using a barbell and doing bicep curls. The challenge with that is there's two challenges. One, you have to be exercising. So for the same reason, you can't you can't breathe hard and fast at rest because you'll you'll change your CO2 levels and you'll make yourself dizzy. Mm. So you have to be exercising to do it. So one of the benefits of isocapnic training is you can do it at rest. So you can do it while you're watching the news or your favorite podcast, and you can you can do your respiratory training at rest. The other challenge with the resistive devices is that if you don't have good respiratory um, mechanics. So you're not incorporating your diaphragm properly and you're not, um, fo- you haven't developed a good pattern of breathing to maximize your lung volumes. They're adding resistance to that will actually make you worse. So much like 
trying to do a bicep curl, if you load someone up with too much weight, they will limit their range of motion to the, the range that they can handle for that weight. And now you're not, for respiratory particularly, you want to maximize the volume. You want to in, improve the range of motion through the full range of motion. As you add resistance to it, you will limit your range of motion. So yes, you'll get stronger, but in a limited range of motion. Mm. And what we want is people to be strong across the full range of motion. And so that the biggest downside of resistance devices is it doesn't teach good breathing patterns and it potentially makes bad breathing patterns worse. Mm. So it's like so you're, it, saying, it, you're saying it, paddles, it, it, pad, pad, it, using paddles in a pool that are too big for you. You, you change your mechanics yes. and, and there are, it's the suboptimal mechanics without the full range of motion. Yeah. Right. And the, the, other, the other problem with that is if you get really strong, but you can only do it for a short period of time, is that going to help you as an endurance athlete? Mm. Probably, probably not. If you can only do five reps of a, of a really heavy bicep curl, is that going to make you a faster swimmer? Probably not. Mm. You, need to be able to, you need to repetitively do it for minutes to potentially hours you need to be able to have a, an endurance capability. So um, when people are looking at the literature, there's two major focuses of the literature. One is respiratory muscle training, RMT, which focuses primarily on, an, on the ability to repeatedly contract the muscles, so endurance, versus IMT, inspiratory muscle training, which is almost always tested using a resistance device. And they look at muscle strength and single breath power. So how much inspiratory force, how much force you can suck in through and the measurement device they use, basically a glorified straw is how, how much you can breathe forcefully through a single breath. And there's no good evidence that increasing your muscle strength in a single breath actually has any benefit to endurance performance. Hmm. And that's some of the, some of the literature that says there's no benefit is well we've increased our strength but there's no strength there's no improvement in performance well that makes perfect sense to those of us that train endurance athletes just because you can increase your your one max squat strength does that make you a better cyclist it, it might but probably not if you haven't been doing a lot of cycling if you haven't been able to transition the single leg squat strength into a cycling dynamics then you're not going to be a better cyclist. The same thing with the respiratory system. If you you need to have the ability to repeatedly contract those muscles for the full duration of your event, whether it's a sprint race, like you say, for an hour, or you're racing Ironman for 10 hours. Yeah. And one final question on the respiratory system before the rapid fire questions. And uh, I heard you uh, talk about how you helped a cross-country skier just with I guess, tactical awareness around strategic use of the respiratory system. Can you explain that with that yeah. example or another example? How, and Because I think that's pretty, um, you know, it's very applicable for athletes to, to yeah. sort of think about the it's, respiratory system. Cross-country skiing is so fun. I, I'm a, I'm a, a recreational cross-country skier, but the, the dynamics and the fa it's fascinating. I love cross-country skiing because uh, it takes in some of the best parts of swimming, uh, which is the technical components and the, and small muscle use and, and, and flow, and then puts it into an outdoor environment where everything changes every moment. And it's so beautiful. So, uh, I wish I'd have been a cross of skier when I grew up, but, uh, uh, we're, we're lucky, uh, in the Okanagan, there's one of the world's best, uh, cross into ski, um, uh, locations, uh, just 30 minutes from my house. 
called Sovereign Lake, where a lot of uh, international skiers come every year to train because we have early season snow. Um, and one of the young athletes that, uh, that we had tested inside and, and identified some respiratory limitations with, um, when we first started playing around with the VO2 master, um, uh, I took it up to the ski hill uh, in the winter. She was preparing for nationals. Uh, and her coach is a good friend of mine. And so we were um, talking about just playing around with VO2 master outside. It's unfortunate because um, it was a, a prototype device that uh, um, it worked really well in the, in the snow. Our new devices um, don't do quite as well with the rapid changes in temperature. So um, we can't recommend using them. But from a, again, the data that comes out of them gets skewed by the, by the um, condensation in the tubes. Uh, and I'm, lo I'm looking for ways of, of overcoming that, but it's an engineering challenge. However, um, we can pull respiratory, again, this is one of the benefits, you can pull respiratory data. So you can pull free respiratory frequencies and some indication of tidal volumes. Although, again, the numbers won't be accurate. I wasn't really that caring about how, whether she was breathing exactly 3.1 liters or 2.9. What I wanted to see was the trends of how she breathed. So what she would do is she was doing a, 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 a 3K loop that she was going to be racing in a few weeks. And what she did was she she um, ski 3K with VOT Master on and uh, and her phone. and the, So it sends Bluetooth data to her phone. She would um, ski the loop give me your phone and then go ski easy without, and, and I would look at the data while she went out and then I would give her uh, interventions to try on the next loop to see if she could ski it faster with changing breathing patterns. So uh, interventions for breathing. So if you understand what limits a skier over the top of a, so short climb up and then a long uh, steady descent on the steady descent, she's going to be recovering on the short climb up. She was able to single stride for most of the way up before she switched to offset. It, so she's a really good skier with really good technique, but she would switch to a less efficient skiing pattern halfway up the climb. And her coach said, right there is, is the problem. She needs to be able to hold the good technique all the way to the top of the climb. So when she came around, we would ask her, why do you switch from single stride to offset? And she says, I just can't, I can't hold that pattern anymore. And when you look at what happened with her breathing pattern, she would lose control of her breathing about 10 seconds before she switched patterns. So she was on single stride, she was breathing at 30 breaths a minute. But then she would all of a sudden have this, this massive shift and she would start breathing erratically at 45 and 50 breaths a minute. And 10 seconds later, she'd switch to offset which gave her a, pattern, a breathing pattern of about 40 breaths a minute. So the goal was we could see that the respiratory, was the respiratory changes were driving a technique change. And it really was that she was producing so much CO2 that she couldn't, she couldn't blow off the CO2 at 30 breaths a minute. So once her CO2 climbed to a certain level, it switched her breathing pattern to a much faster breathing pattern. And that forced her to change her technique to be able to keep up with the breathing. So the intervention, and we tried a bunch of interventions to see, we tried to get her to see if she could do faster single strides so that she was breathing 32 or 33 breaths, but her technique fell apart and that didn't work. And then we tried offsetting earlier to see if she could actually go as fast up the hill offset instead of single striding, but she couldn't. The technique wasn't as good offset. She was better single striding. 
So what we ended up being able to do with her was on the flat leading into the climb, she would overbreathe. So she would hyperventilate and blow off CO2 to start her at the bottom of the hill with a low level of CO2. And then what happened is when she single started, as her CO2 started to climb, she would get further and further up the climb before she ran into an alarm phase and had to overbreathe. She got to the point where she got so good at pre-breathing, she could do the entire climb as single striding and maintain that 30 breaths a minute all the way over the top. And then she would she was quite uncomfortable with a CO2 being that high, but she was able to do it. And her time on that single climb dropped by 12 seconds. And now she's doing a five lap race. That was a minute and a half difference. That made the difference for her being middle of the pack to being able to lead out over the top of the climb and win the race when it came to nationals the next week. So she won nationals and she contributes national success to the 12 seconds that she dropped on every climb. And she single started that every single climb and every other athlete in the field was offsetting because they couldn't, and for exactly the same reasons. And I, I don't doubt that we could have made the same difference for most of those athletes with a respiratory training intervention. So that's taking someone who has been identified with a respiratory limitation earlier, trained to understand how to control their breathing, and then taking them into the sport that they're doing, using the data to see how they're breathing and how they're using the respiratory system, and then having an intervention that specifically intervenes to allow increased performance. Yeah. And I, I think that ex uh, example yeah. is, is brilliant. And, and I also think, I mean, of course, not everybody is going to go out and, and have a VO2 master. That's just reality for all of athletes. But but yeah. I think for me, that example made me just think about, uh, because in cycling, you have those same challenges as in, uh, as in cross-country skiing with uh, how the terrain dictates the power output and, and what you have to do to and we've, maintain we've speed. And this is... This is a great, and this is something that every athlete can do without, you don't need testing equipment to, to measure your breathing. You, you just need to be able to count yeah. and you can, and you can count how many breaths it takes to do any given class, a little rolling course. And you can say, okay, from here to there in this Strava segment, how many breaths did I take? And on the next next time you do it, just count how many breaths it takes for that Strava segment and then play around with breathing patterns that may or may not benefit you. If it's the same kind of climb as that as that crossing ski, if it's a minute long climb, you can dramatically shift how your body responds to breathing in that climb. You can find at 30 seconds you're going to all of a sudden have to breathe a lot faster. Well, if you pre-breathe your CO2 down and you can do slow breathing pattern the whole the whole climb, that whole minute, guess what? The energy that it was going to breathing faster is now going 100% to your legs. It can make it can make a 15% difference. So just for numbers, your cardiac output at maximal breathing intensity, 15% of your cardiac output is going to drive your respiratory system. Any benefit to breathing changes and efficiencies in the respiratory system will lead directly to improved performance. And that's the numbers we keep telling people that you have 15% that you have actually the ability to change can add to your legs. So if you're working 100% on just improving your legs for cycling, you're missing you're you're 85% of the way there. But there's 15% that you're leaving on the table that you can actually improve efficiency to provide more energy to your legs. Mm. Yeah. 
uh, that's a great note to end on, and we'll have links to resources and and stuff in the show notes for people who nice. want to learn more. Uh, but let's do the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is: What's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, yeah, my favorite uh, that I read a couple of years ago is uh, "Endure" by yeah. Alex Hutchinson. Fantastic book, and uh, yeah gets into the weeds about lactate and, and everything else and actually does a pretty good job of covering some of the, the myths and uh, and challenges. So yeah, great book. And what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Yeah, I don't think it's any surprise we're going to talk about breathing, but uh, for me personally, it's learning, understanding, and being able to control my breathing. And who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Yeah, I've mentioned his name a few times as my greatest mentor that I ever had was Jörg Feldman. Yeah. And finally, where can people find and follow you and your projects? Yeah, I'm in that age category where I'm not particularly um, available online very much. But I, but uh, the companies that I'm associated with, uh, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. And uh, so that's vo2master.com and breathewaybetter.com. Those are my two. Those are the two projects that where I'm involved in that if people want to reach out, they can find me through there. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a great pleasure talking to you and lots of really great information. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. Uh, as always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and primarily the links we'll have there are to the Balance Point Racing team, to VO2 Master and Breathe Way Better. And next Monday, I interview Nikki Winfield Almquist on the topic of a pretty new study or newly published study comparing traditional versus block periodization. That is a really interesting topic to uh, dig into the details of. Now, as it's getting colder and rainier in the Northern Hemisphere, consider planning a week of training in some of the best winter climates that Europe has to offer, Mallorca in Spain and the Algarve in Portugal. We are running a training camp in the Algarve at the end of January, and this one is for advanced athletes only, and then a bigger camp open to a wide range of abilities in Mallorca at the end of March of 2023. Check out all of the information on scientifictriathlon.com and even me directly if you have additional questions or want to register. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on roka.com for slash TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. And thank you to Zenate. Use the Zenate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Zenate risk-free for up to 30 days and get the special Zenate plus TTS bundle, including the Swim Trainer and a number of Zenate training plans and on-demand workouts on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft love.